Uh, Our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Our scripture reader is Jane Breederlin. And in honor of God's word, uh, please remain standing. Listen as I read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Um, We're going to kind of get right into things, but before we get into Matthew chapter 2, I want to take a minute because we're a few weeks into this series in the Gospel of Matthew and uh, we are giving it real creative names. This is part four. So every, every week, it's just going to be the next part, part five, part six. Um, but we're on part four already, and I haven't taken a, a moment to just give you maybe what you would call the, t- the table of contents. And so I, I do want to just show you at least how we're going to try to navigate the, the gospel of, of Matthew. And, uh, and so it'll be uh, here on the screen uh, behind me. Um, but th- this, this, is the, uh, this is the layout. Um, if you want to go ahead and go to the next screen. Um, of, of the Gospel of Matthew. Well, maybe we don't have any notes today. Um, but but the, the way the Gospel of Matthew starts off is in the, the first four chapters are basically, they function like an introduction. And so we get a genealogy right off the bat, and then we get a handful of stories. And if you were to track through those first four chapters, uh, the number of times that the word fulfill or fulfilled shows up, you would find out that it shows up six times in four chapters. And so Matthew not only gives us this genealogy that ties us to the Old Testament and wants us to to retrace Jesus's lineage lineage back into the Old Testament, but then in these first four chapters, as he shares these stories, he is constantly saying, in order to fulfill, in order to fulfill. And then he's quoting Old Testament prophets. And so there's this intentional effort as as Matthew gives us the introduction to his gospel, these first four chapters, he is making all of these connections back uh, to, to the Old Testament. So we get a genealogy, and then we get his birth narrative, which we looked at last week. Uh, we get the wise men, which we look at this week. 
uh, the threat from Herod, which we'll look at next week, uh, the forerunner, John the baptizer, um, Jesus' baptism, uh, his time in the wilderness, and then the start of his public ministry. That kind of all functions, the first four chapters, as an introduction. Um, The the next uh, uh, part of the framework is, is what looks like five books that, that Matthew seems to assemble. Chapters 5 through 9 uh, kind of point towards Jesus' authority. It's, uh, it contains the biggest part of that is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, then book 2 is, is opposition, where there starts to be pushback against Jesus. Book 3, we see polarization. Book 4, uh, his call to discipleship, what it looks like to follow Jesus with everything you got. Uh, chap- book five is judgment. I know we're all looking forward to that. Uh, those, those chapters where Jesus has some really, really hard sayings. Uh, and some call- scholars see this section of Matthew from chapter five through 25 as Matthew's creative way of presenting Jesus as uh, one, as a type of Moses, as a new Moses, as a true and better Moses, uh, one who is a prophet and, and speaks for the Lord. Um, it speaks as the Lord, um, but not just rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, but who actually rescues his people uh, from the slavery of, of sin. And so, you know, Moses is known for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And some scholars see Matthew as presenting Jesus, giving us these five books. Uh, every one of these books has a, a, a pretty big section of, of uh, teaching and then a section of stories or parables, application. And then we get to the conclusion, the last, the last few chapters. Uh, climactic, tragic, glorious, you know, all, all of it. And that's how Matthew uh, lands, lands the plane. So I wanted to get this in front of you at some point in time, and today just seemed like it was a good, uh, as good a time as any to, to take a minute and do that. So now as we jump into chapter 2, uh, let, let me just give you a warning. And every once in a while I say this here. Um, like th- this passage, Matthew chapter 2, is, is a little weird, uh, not just the verses that we're going to look at today, but, but the, the, whole, the whole chapter. Um, and if, if you're a person who struggles with the supernatural, man, you are going to struggle with the Bible uh, because the Bible is unashamed or uh, very uh, upfront about the realities of, of a supernatural world, the expectation that there is more going on than what we can see, that there's more going on than just the tangible world, uh, that there is a supernatural world with supernatural uh, influences that are at work uh, to, to bring about uh, God, God and his angels to bring about good things and Satan and the demons to bring about, uh, to, to, to push against, to oppose God's work in the world. And so the Bible assumes that. The Bible works with that. The Bible is, is constantly aware of that reality. So if you have a hard time with the supernatural, you're going to bump into it a lot uh, with the Bible, and we're going to see it uh, this week and next week uh, in this second chapter of Matthew's gospel. Um, th- th- this, this text here, though, um, it, it's going to challenge us. I guess all of chapter 2 is going to challenge us because Matthew is intent on bringing out this truth that God is at work in the world and that there are forces that want to stop God's work in the world. And, and that's, it's not unique to Matthew. It's just, it's here. It's present. It's, it's part of uh, what we're going to face as we walk through uh, Matthew chapter 2. So just a heads up. It's, it's an invitation to, to consider the fact that maybe there is uh, more to the story than, than, than you realize or that I realize. And the Bible wants to, to turn the lights on for us. So Matthew chapter 2, first let, let, let's look at seeking, seeking the king. 
If you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, here's what you see. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So verse 1 says that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Later on, we find out that they were looking for he who has been born king of the Jews. So these wise men come to Jerusalem with this story about a star that they saw in the sky and questions about a king. And if you notice how this is written, it says that they show up looking for a king who is, not a king who would be. If you'll notice there in verse 2, it says, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So it's not where's the one who's born who is eventually going to become the king. They show up and say there's been this you know, astronomical event, and it's brought us this far, and we're looking for of the current who is king. So you can see why this would get the attention of the current king, whose name is Herod. Um, now, these wise men, they're a little bit of a mystery. Uh, maybe you have heard them called wise men. Maybe you've heard them called magi. If you've heard the term magi, you might say, I, you know, I've read Matthew, I've read Luke. Like, wh- wh- where does this term magi come from? Well, magi is actually the Greek word that's being translated here. So sometimes uh, people like to refer to these guys as magi because it just says, you know what? We don't know who they are. We're just going to use the Greek word instead of trying, uh, trying to guess. And so you could say, though, okay, well, you're going to use magi. What is a magi? It really is a good question. Um, they, they've been called kings. Uh, there's been uh, multiple uh, scholars that have concluded uh, that these are kings, but there's not really good evidence uh, to support that. Uh, if you were to say how many of them were there, I, I bet you have a guess. Three, your, your nativity scene, the songs that we sing all suggest three. Uh, but they're the, I mean, it's plural, so it's certainly more than one. Uh, but there's no reason to conclude that there's three. Uh, most scholars think that the reason why three kind of became the common guess is because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So there were three gifts. Maybe there were three wise men. Um, but but there, there could have been more. Uh, there is no, no clear clarity there. So who are these guys? How many? There's, there's some good questions here. But, but if, if you were to try to dig into the Greek word studies on that word magi, um, I put it on the screen here. But here, here is a definition that, that does show up as pretty prominent. Uh, a Persian Babylonian, uh, so it's Persian, but at that point in time, it would have been primarily Babylonian. Uh, wise man and priest who was expert in astrology, interpretation of dreams, and various other secret arts. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what the definition is. Um, so so yeah, they're, they're learned, like they, they, they're educated, uh, they're, they're intelligent. You know, they would kind of be like the top philosophers or the top scholars uh, that are resourced by the various leaders um, in Babylonia uh, or Babylon. And so they, these are, these are uh, they're no joke. Uh, kind of, of people, at least from what we can tell. And, and the indication is that they observed, again, this, this event in the sky, something astronomical, something with a, a star, and they interpreted it as an indication that a king had been, had been born. And this is their wheelhouse. They, they're into astronomy. Well, this happened in the sky. They are the interpreter of things. Well, they're trying to figure out what is this what does this event have to say? What does it mean? And for them, it was like an alarm. 
it was like an alert. It's like, this is something that can't be ignored. This is something that must be checked out. And while we don't have an exact timeline, it does seem like as much as two years have passed since the birth of Jesus. And so we, we, we have a, a gap of time where they, they saw something in the sky that motivated them to go check it out, and they're still looking. They're still trying to figure out where did this happen and what exactly was it? Where is this baby king? So they come looking and they end up in Jerusalem. Now Herod, uh, the, the text tells us that Herod is, is the king um, and he is troubled, it says, he's troubled about this news uh, of, of another king. And so Herod, and we're going to talk more about Herod next week, but Herod grabs his wise men. He grabs his priests and his scribes, and he asks them, where, where was that Christ to, to be born? Asks this. So verse 3, when Herod, and there's something pretty uh, interesting about the way that Herod asks this. So verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. And that may have been because all of Jerusalem was troubled. It might also be because when the king's upset, everybody pays. And, and, you know, Herod was a little bit of a loose cannon. And so whether it was they, they found out about this or not, uh, it, there, there was quite a bit of, of disruption about it. Verse 4, he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So, so Herod's mind immediately goes to, wait, where was that, where was that um, prophecy? Like, what, what did they say about that Christ? Because there's some interesting things in the Greek here. First of all, there's an article the Christ. The article is right in there. And it's identifying the fact that we're, we're talking about an official title, the Christ. So when, when Herod hears this story of wise men looking for this baby born, he's like, what, wait, they're looking for a king. Remind me? I, 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 it's familiar, but I can't remember the details. What was the, what was the prophecy for the Christ? And then he also uh, uses a verb tense that really emphasizes the certainty. So when he asks the question of his wise men, where was the Christ to be born? So the Christ to be born. He, he's saying this was promised to happen. This, this was like this official title. It was a certainty of the event. And he gathers the people that he thinks should know. So he gets them together and the priests and the scribes do know. They know it's like, it seems like they know immediately. He gets them together and verse 5, it says, they told him. It's like, yeah, we, yeah. Can, I mean, can you hear him? It's like, well, well King Herod, like, it, it's Bethlehem. Like, that, that's the answer. In, in, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod, some, some trigger went off to where he's like, I think I've heard about this before. I've heard about that promise. I've heard about that prophecy. He gets the people that should know, and the people that should know do know, and they confirm that it should happen in Bethlehem. So uh, uh, Herod then pulls him off to the side and says, -tell me, tell me a little bit more here. In, in verse 7, he's like, he gets the wise men secretly, and he says from them, when did that star, the star you're looking for, when exactly did, did that show up in the sky? And he, you know, I'm sure he seemed like he was genuinely looking. He was genuinely curious. Uh, but what we'll, learn to, uh, what we'll learn next week is that Herod wanted to know the timeline so that he could do something about it. 
so that he could take care of this uh, baby king, that he could wipe out this baby king. But what we see in this sequence of verses is if you go back to chapter 1 and we read the birth narrative in verses 18 through 25, Matthew, his first story, we see that Jesus being born to a virgin and being God with us was the fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah. Now here in the second story, we have this narrative of the wise men showing up and we get Micah's prophecy. And Micah's prophecy said this baby is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so we're getting this this affirmation or this constant uh, desire from Matthew to connect us to the work that God has been doing in the world all along. And the place that Jesus was going to be born is in a place called Bethlehem. Now, I've been to Bethlehem. And some of you have been to Bethlehem too. Uh, there's, there's more. There's actually more than one Bethlehem in the region, but this is Bethlehem of Judah. And so th- th- this Bethlehem, I mean, I've been there. There's nothing that significant about it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of rocks. There, there's a lot of rocks around there, but there's not, not a whole lot of uh, other things. But it has connections with King David. And King David had received a promise from God that the, the offspring of David would reign on the throne forever as the king, the eternal king, the son of David. And so not only do we have the the genealogy in chapter 1, but now we have this additional connection with David where Jesus is actually born in the city where David was born, in the city of Bethlehem. It's exactly what Micah said. The ruler would come from Bethlehem. And when Herod asks about it, all all the scribes that lived in Jerusalem, they all knew it immediately. They all knew. Micah talked about that. Micah predicted this. That was prophecy from the Old Testament. And so uh, they are told uh, it's, it's Bethlehem. The, the wise men get, get the word uh, that, it's, uh, it's, that that's, where, that's where the baby uh, could probably be found. So verse 7, he goes to them, asks them when, and then he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. We'll revisit that phrase uh, next week. So that, that's, that's what gets us through verse 8, is uh, they come to Jerusalem looking for this, this, uh, the result of this astronomical event. They want to know where the baby is. Herod calls the experts. The experts say, oh yeah, uh, the word of the Lord. Micah, the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, that tells us, that points right to him. Herod goes to those wise men and says, this is where he's at. Go check him out. Let me know. I'll be there in a bit. Now, I don't want you to miss what just happened because Matthew is showing us something pretty cool. These are the wise men. These are the the learned uh, uh, scholars, uh, probably of Babylon. And they are on an investigation. They are looking for something that has captivated their attention. And Matthew is showing us that all of their worldly wisdom, boy, it it told them that they needed to investigate this. It told them that there was a king out there. It, It pointed them in that direction. But it could not tell them how to find the king. You see what Matthew does here? They're looking and looking. It's been two years. They are, they've gotten to Jerusalem. But how is it that they actually find the king? 
That's the thing that the wisdom of the world doesn't want to acknowledge, but it is core to understanding the importance of God's word, the written word of God and the living word of God. They needed God's word to find the true king. The, the scribes had to pull out the Hebrew Bible and they had to look to the prophet Micah who spoke on behalf of the Lord and said that ruler will be in Bethlehem. They, they needed the revelation of God in order to find the one true king. You know, in the New Testament, in, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, there's some really disruptive verses in, in Romans chapter 1. And there's, there's verses that right now in the year 2023 get people really, really worked up. And I, and I understand why they, they, get, they get you worked up. But honestly, these verses in Romans 1 that I'm referencing right now should probably get you a little bit more worked up. Because what Romans 1 has to say is this. Anybody alive on the earth can go outside and look in the woods, sit by the bay, watch the sunrise and the sunset, see the change of the seasons, look at animals running around, and come to the conclusion this didn't happen on accident. There's a creator. Somebody's in charge of this. So this, this came from somewhere. This did not happen on accident. Romans 1 says everybody has the ability when they look around and they should come to the conclusion this didn't happen on accident. But then Paul, as he writes to this, this letter to, the, to, to Rome, to the church at Rome, he basically says this, you can conclude that it didn't happen on accident that there is a creator, but you're never going to find him. Not on your own. Natural revelation is what it's called. All of this incredible beauty around us. It says to us, somebody did this, but it can never answer the question, who did this? Who did this? And am I okay with him? Am I in a good relationship with him? What's this character? What's he like? You see, natural revelation, that one is, that there's someone out there, but it can never answer the question. Wise men have of who that one is. And in a very similar way, the, but all of them that these wise men had caused them to go seeking for a king. But all of their wisdom could never cause them to find the king. They needed the revelation of God to actually find the king. The creator has to come. He has to reveal himself. He has to open the door. He has to show you the way. They had to go to the word of God. It had to be revealed to them. It's one of the beautiful things about the entire narrative of Jesus' birth that we read in Matthew and Luke primarily is that God's the initiator. God is the one who took the step. God is the one who sent his son. God is the one who proclaims the truth. God is the one who says, this is who this baby is. All of this revelation and you say, curtains off. He had to open our eyes. He had to reveal it. Natural revelation is absolutely incredible. Our ability to think and with the God of heaven is beyond that about it. Yes, please seek. Don't ever stop seeking. Look, You're like explore, consider, seek. Yes, please seek. But re realize this. You're never going to find who the God of heaven actually is unless he reveals it to you. Unless he does, unless he takes the step to pull the curtains back. 
So seek the king. Yes, please do. But there is a sobering reality. You'll never find him unless he shows you. Well, boy, do we have good news about this. We just said it. God himself took those steps to pull the curtains back. God himself was the initiator who brought revelation. So so look at what happens in verses 9 through 12. The revelation leads them to Jesus. They go to the word of God, and the word of God points them to Jesus, and they go and they find Jesus. The Magi find Jesus, and when they get to him, look at their response. They joyfully worship him. They joyfully worship him. It says in verse 11, uh, uh, well, verse 10, they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So verse 11 says they're packed full of joy. Verse, 12, or verse 11 goes on to say that when they show up in the house, down to the floor, baby. Uh, you know, it's like down to your knees. The only response here is worship. And this is not rare. This is not rare. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when people have encounters with the God of heaven, falling to their knees is the most common response to that. It is overwhelming. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision where he is in the throne room with God. And he, he, he falls apart. You know, part of what his conclusion is, I don't belong here. This is too great and too grand. This God is way too holy. I don't belong in here. This is so far above my pay grade. I, Isaiah's life was his mouth. He was a prophet. And standing before God, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've got nothing. My best gift is nothing. Falls down in humble worship of the God of heaven. And as these wise men come to Jesus, it's exactly what they do. They come in and they are on the floor. And then they offer him their gifts. And there's a a little part of me, I don't want to play too much into this, but I, I do like the fact that they fell first. It's almost like these gifts are nothing. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's like that's, that's nothing. And like they lost their minds and they just fell before Jesus. And then after they uh, were there for a moment, they're like, oh yeah, we brought, we brought these for you. It's like the gift is a, is a byproduct. The gift is an afterthought. The, the first thing is the glory of God in the flesh. The glory of the person of Jesus. They fall down and they worship Here's what I want to point, to you, uh, point you to. Think about where the wise men have ended up. They have ended up in the exact same place that the shepherds ended up. Now, we, we, we read more about the shepherds in, 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 uh, in Luke chapter 2, in Luke's account. But here we have the wise men, and they end up in the exact same place as the shepherds. Matthew ch- chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. Now, who were the wise men again? Who were these magi? They were the cultural elite, man. They were the philosophers. They were the scholars. They were the top 1% of the top 1%. Who were the shepherds? Not the cultural elite. Like, not even close. They were ignorant. They were usually illiterate. They were the bottom rung of society. And yet... In the narrative accounts of Jesus' birth, 
both the, the, the shepherds and the wise men end up in the exact same place. Before the, this baby king, before the Messiah. Why? Why the top rung and the bottom rung both drawn to this little baby? Well, the Bible was telling us because they both got a revelation. The wise men hear it through the word of God, through Micah. The shepherds, they get it directly from God's messengers, from the angels in the sky. The point is that one group is simple and one group is very, very sophisticated. One group is, is dumb, one group is smart. And yet they both need the exact same thing. And they both end up in the exact same place. Do you know that you have to too? Do you know that that's the destination for you too? You, you, you need to land there too? You know, Jesus is the revelation that you have needed your whole life. But you, you've, you've got to respond to him. You've got to trust him with your life. You've got to trust him to be able to bring you to God. Instead of you saving you, that Jesus can actually save you. The top rung and the bottom rung and everybody in between. You see, sometimes the, the wisdom of this world, maybe, maybe you've heard this from a friend or a family member, that they, they look at Christianity and one of the quick conclusions, um, one of the modern conclusions about Christianity, one of the things that often is hated about Christianity, is that it is, it is so exclusive, it, that it's so narrow and, and so exclusive. And if you've been in these conversations, you know, you'll, you'll hear something like, it's so narrow, it's so exclusive, because Christianity actually has the audacity to say that there is only one way to God. That it is through this person, Jesus Christ, who is God, he is the logos, he's, the, he's, he's actual reality, he's the logic, he's the reason for everything. You have to receive him, and all other religions, I mean, other religions have components of truth, but they're not right. Christianity offers the one way to be united with the God who made you. Everything else is a dead end. Everything else is empty. And the response to that is, how narrow, how elitist, you know, how, how exclusive. But have you noticed that the, the wisdom of the world or the world itself has a tendency to be pretty narrow and exclusive? It often looks down at, at little people. The world often looks down at the uneducated, looks down at failures, looks down at the uncultured. The, the, the wise of this world, you know, they, 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 they get frustrated with the fact that Christianity is narrow and exclusive. But you can always ask them, do, do you believe that everyone is going to be saved? And usually the answer is no, they don't. A, a, a good question would be, do you believe that an axe murderer will go to heaven? What, what is their answer to does a, an axe murderer go to heaven? Well, if your answer is no, an axe murderer does not go to heaven, then you're determining that going to heaven and being united with God is based on what you do. And that is the wisdom of the world. And whether they want to admit it or not, that's pretty narrow and pretty exclusive. Christians say that you have to come to God through Christ, but the wise of the world say that you have to be moral and decent. Well, what about those of us who aren't moral and decent? You know, it's a pretty long list. 
Some of us aren't. We're not decent and we're not moral. Some of us are failures. Some of us are really, really broken. You see, the gospel has better news because the gospel comes to all of us. You know, is, is, is there anybody in this room who would just hold up their hand and be like, I'm, I'm helpless? Like, I'm not going to make the cut? I, if there's a standard like that, that the moral and the decent, the ones who are winning at life, like they're the ones who get in, I'm, I'm in trouble. You see, there, there's, an in, there's an invitation here, a recognition that the gospel offers better news because the gospel actually has an invitation to everybody. Look at Christ. Look at how he comes. He comes poor. He comes weak. He comes despised. And he does not only come to the wise. Yes, in this text, the wise are kneeling before him. But we know that the shepherds did too. You know who else is in that scene, that nativity scene that you put on your fireplace? Mary. Think about Mary. Think about what's going on with her. When God comes to Mary through this angel Gabriel, and he says, Mary, I, I am about to change the entire world. I'm going to send my son into the world, and I'm going to use you to do it. And if you go read the account of Mary interacting with Gabriel about this, you know, this is uh, uh, ad-libbing here, but Mary's like, are you kidding me? Like, Me? You, you, want, you want to work through me? Th think about what Mary knows about Mary. I mean, the list is, is, is long. First, she is a woman in a culture that does not give very much respect to women. And so for God to pick someone and say, you're going to be the center point of this incredible incarnation work. God picks a woman in a culture that doesn't respect women? Secondly, she was a young woman probably in her mid-teens. Thirdly, she's a poor woman, probably not educated, probably illiterate. And not only that, fourthly, she's about to become an unwed mother. A scandal in that culture. A social outcast on top of all those other things. You, you got to imagine the wheels racing through Mary's head. And God has the audacity to come and say, I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm going to come into the world through you. And Mary's sitting there saying, what? I'm a girl. I'm a poor girl. I'm a poor girl that's going to, you're going to make me into a social outcast. How is this going to change things? You know what Gabriel says back to Mary? With God, nothing is impossible. That's what Gabriel has to say to Mary. Mary's got a long list of things, and Gabriel's response is, with God, nothing is impossible. I'm going to do this, and we're going to turn the world on its head. And the message of Jesus ends up being this upside-down kingdom, this incredible, uh, you know, the way up is down. And God demonstrates it from the first day and the first work through, the, the, through this teenage mom. You see, Jesus comes to the Marys, Jesus comes to the shepherds, Jesus comes to the wise men. And what all this is telling us? That the wisdom of the world often is only for the wise. But the wisdom of Christ is for everybody. 
You know, Jesus comes to Mary's and he comes to shepherds and he comes to wise men and he comes to you right now. What, what do you think this is? We, we are sitting here with the word of God and we are reading the words of God that are declaring to us the fact that God took on a human body and entered into this world. This is the revelation of God to you personally right here on February 5th, 2023. And your invitation is to come. If you've been seeking the king, I got great news. The door just opened wide. The revelation was just shared that this one hope for your rescue is right in front of you. The revelation of Jesus as revealed in these birth stories shows us that if you receive him, there really is hope for anybody. The door is so wide open. There's hope for everyone. The Bible tells us that if you seek him, you will find him. But the Bible also tells us you'll never find him on your own. Well, here you go. If you're within earshot of these these sound waves, the revelation is happening to you. This declaration that you'll never find it on your own is what makes the revelation of Jesus so necessary. That not only is there the written word of God, but there's the living word of God, Jesus. And then there is his people who have been sent all over the world to share this good news with anyone who will listen. And you're part of that. If you've received this, now you are a giver of this. If you've received the revelation, now Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel is going to say to his people, take that message, take that revelation, and go share it with everybody you can. Let let them know, because guess what? They can look at the clouds and conclude there's a creator, but they'll never know who he is unless there's revelation. And God wants to use you. God used Mary. God can use you. God wants the revelation of who he is and who Jesus is to spread across the earth. These accounts are all Christmas accounts. You know, we said starting Matthew in the, in the month of January is going to kind of force us back into Christmas texts at a, at a time of the year that we're not normally thinking about Christmas test, texts. But boy, oh boy, look at this. This is what Christmas is about. God comes to us. God comes to you. God appears to you. God is revealing himself. You don't find God God reveals himself. What, what, what got the wise men moving? What got the wise men? That, that, where did that come from? Where did this, this astronomical event happen? It, somebody got their attention. The apostle Paul has this incredible moment when he becomes a Christian on this road. And there's this bright light. And Jesus himself meets Paul on this road. At that time, he was known as Saul. And he was a persecutor of the church. And he is this this enemy of the work of God in the world. And when Jesus shows up to Paul, and Paul is blind, the the light is so bright, Jesus shows up to Paul. And and, and, and this is the gist of what Jesus says to Paul. He says, Paul, why do you keep kicking against this? What does that tell you? Jesus is saying, Paul, this isn't the first time. We've had these run-ins before. This revelation has been put before you before. There's been plenty of opportunities for you to see it before. Do you see it now? Listen, that's the nature of God's work in the world. He is constantly poking and inviting and revealing. It's it's all around you. 
God's work is permeating this world. And the invitation to you is to come, to recognize that you receive his work on your behalf and you are made right with the God of heaven. God has to speak to you through the word. God has to come to you through his son. And that is exactly what he's done. It's on the table right in front of you. Well, before we go to the table, let me just say this. If you have found the one true king, if you're here today and you're like, man, I, I actually, I, I know exactly what we're talking about, about bowing at the feet of this baby Jesus. I know exactly what we're talking about in regard to worshiping this one true king. Then can I encourage you to respond to that by continuing to seek? By recognizing that this one true king that you've met now invites you to explore him. You know, Christianity sometimes can feel like it's static. Like, oh, I know that. John 3, 16. Yeah, I heard that when I was seven. I went to a Bible club. And it's like the curiosity's gone. The investigation's gone. Th that is not the invitation of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus is that if you've come to him, now he turns the lights on and you're invited to explore him, to explore the world, to realize what he's doing in you and around you. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I, I confess Christ is king. Okay, continue to seek. The, the, you, we live in a, the golden age of access to the scriptures, not only in, in written concrete form, but in digital form. It's around us all the time. S seek him. See what he's about. See what he wants to, to, to do in your life and in your heart. It's an invitation. It's not the end of the road. Boy, not at all. I actually believe that the eternal kingdom is going to be an eternity of learning. I don't think when the eternal kingdom happens that we automatically become equal with God in knowledge. I think it's an eternity of learning, just constantly being blown away by a new realization of who God is and what he's doing in the world. We get to start that journey right now. Well, as we come to the table today, there will be some prayers on the screen and if you're here and you're like, man, I don't think I've actually come to the feet of Jesus. I don't actually think I've seen him as the revelation of my rescue. Well, there's some prayers to, to help give you some language to navigate that. If you're here and you're a Christian, we invite you to come, get the bread and get the cup. And maybe just like the wise men, joyfully and humbly, as you come to this table, recognize the fact that you, you know, it's a miracle that anyone's a Christian. Do you know that? It is a miracle that anyone is a Christian. And so you can come to this table thrilled that the revelation of God has fallen all the way to your ears, to your eyes. And we can take this bread and this cup and celebrate the fact that it's all true. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this text and for these wise men who reacted, who responded to this event that got their attention that caused them to ask questions, some deeper questions about what was going on in the world. We thank you that they, 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 they were exposed to this revelation, this word of the Lord from the prophet Micah that showed them where the Jesus, this, this Messiah, this King, where he was. God, many of us in this room have stories like that. We started having some questions, started trying to figure out some things, and you brought some resources into the picture. You pointed us in the right direction. You showed us who Jesus actually is and what he's doing on our, what he has done on our behalf. 
God, we thank you that this, this supper, this meal, this table that we come to, this bread and this cup represent the, the, that, that high moment, that, that climax of Jesus' earthly life when he went to the cross as a substitute and took our place so that we could be brought in. We thank you for Christ. And God, would you give us joyful, humble hearts as we worship him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.